When something happens to your car, you might say, No! My car! But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Today, 425 Lafayette Street is home to the public theater. But in the 19th century, it was one of New York's first public libraries. Its dense and dusty shelves were filled with volumes from around the world, lit after dusk by the strange, otherworldly glow of gaslight, casting shadows onto the high rafters. But the Astor Library was home to much more than just books. In 1860, the librarian Joseph Green Cogswell was roaming the library, the only man in the room. It was around 11 p.m., and Cogswell was returning some books to a particular shelf when he spotted the figure of a man, a well-dressed gentleman, simply staring up and admiring a stack of books. As Cogswell moved closer, he could just make out the contours of this man's face. This man looked familiar. Cogswell immediately recognized him as a local doctor named Post, a doctor of some acclaim and popular among his patients. He was also a man who had died six weeks before. Cogswell approached Dr. Post and declared, You seldom, if ever, visited the library while living. Why do you trouble me now when you're dead? Dead? At that, the grim spirit turned to the librarian and promptly vanished. The very next evening, Cogswell was again strolling through the dark stacks. He'd convinced himself that the previous evening's encounter had been but only a hallucination. Yet, once again, with only gaslight illuminating the chamber, he once again saw the ghostly doctor staring up into the Tower of Books. Cogswell once again approached the spirit. Again, I ask you, why do you, who never visited the library while living, trouble it now when dead? And again, the ghost, appearing frightened, vanished into the ether. Why was this spirit haunting the same spot night after night? What was he in search of? And with that, Cogswell turned his attention to the row of books that the spirit kept coming back to. It was a row of books devoted to the study of demonology, witchcraft, magic, and spiritualism. Some of these books were already hundreds of years old in 1860 and had such titles as Kern's Magicon, Glanville on Witches and Apparitions, and Badiah's Demonomania. A chill ran down Cogswell's spine. Was the doctor's ghost searching for a book that might help bring him back into the world of the living? Well, the third evening came, and Cogswell was once again in the stacks at 11 p.m., and once again he saw the ghost. Cogswell shouted at the spirit, This is the third time I've seen you. Tell me if any of these class of books disturbs you, and if they do, I'll have them removed immediately. And with this threat, or perhaps offer, of getting rid of these books on the occult, at this, 
the spirit looked Cogswell in the eyes and then disappeared into thin air, leaving only the wisp of gaslight in its wake. Dr. Post never returned to the library, but to this day at the public theater, if you're paying attention, you may again see this impatient reader reaching for a book which might return him to the land of the living. The Bowery Boys, episode 419, Ghost Stories by Gaslight. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers, and I have been awakened from a long and mysterious slumber, Greg. (laughs) Just in time to tell a few ghost stories. We have summoned you from the great unknown. Where, what is the unknown? Can you give us a little bit more information? I think it's a little bit known, but I'm, I'm very excited to announce um, that, you know, I have been tucked away up around, say, 61st and 5th Avenue for the past few months um, as I am once again co-hosting HBO's official Gilded Age podcast um, alongside Alicia Malone from TCM. And season two of the Gilded Age comes out on Sunday, October 29th, 2023 on Max, and our podcast episodes drop at the same time that the episodes air. So so thank you, Greg, for producing all mm-hmm. of these excellent shows <laughs> in my absence, and I am so glad to be back here with you, sitting down with you for our annual Spookfest. But we, we thought that we would approach our annual Ghost Stories podcast in a slightly different way, a, mm-hmm. a different aesthetic. Aesthetic, mm-hmm. Because earlier this year on episode 407, you and I talked about the history of gaslight in New York and the way that New Yorkers lit the city in the 19th century. So today's ghost stories are very traditional in nature, and most are at least partially set in the 19th century. Now, we've been doing the Bowery Boys ghost stories for many years. We have told many stories. I'm Mm -hmm. kind of shocked that there are actually still stories left. And yet, this this year's (laughs) batch of tales are some of the best that I have ever seen. And most, as always, are taken from newspaper reports, history books, and firsthand accounts. Yes, and as always, we must stress that these stories can be enjoyed, you know, on any level. If you just like a good scare, you know, we hope that you'll enjoy the frights. Mm-hmm. And if you believe in ghosts, then, you know, these these should hit especially hard because they are all situated in actual New York City locations. Even when the buildings themselves are long gone, some are still around, but many are long gone. Even still, who's to say that the spirits themselves aren't still hanging around? Look, people live for decades in rent-stabilized apartments because they can't afford to leave. So what's to say ghosts aren't similarly trapped within New York's grid plan? If you think <laughs> By the co- their landlords. <laughs> by their landlords. If you think the cost of living is bad in New York, imagine the cost of ghosting. Now, I don't have gas lights here on in the studio, but I'm Mm -hmm. doing a lot of candles. That's my Mm -hmm. aesthetic this year. Lots of fairy lights over here. It's like a, in here, it's like a cross between what we do in the shadows and a teenage girl's room. (laughs) I'm like, I'm giving some Sidious Nadia energy here. Um, Of course, I've got, I've also got Cheryl Crow in the house. 
uh-huh. peering over my good shoulder. Good to see her. She's looking good. Yeah. yeah. Her shadow is flickering over my head from a candle flame. This would actually be a nice room to take a bath in. <laughs> Quite frankly, it's, or, film a, or film a sting video in, maybe. Yeah, either a bath or a sting video. Um, I think you might take offense at that. Or a but, bath with um, sting. <laughs> you know, it's a scene. But we've we've lowered the blinds. We've warmed up our creepy voices. Mm-hmm. Are you ready, Greg? I am. For our first story, I thought I'd start with a little education by mm. turning our attention to a university in the Bronx, one of the most historic locations within that borough, an institution named Fordham University. Ah, yes. We spoke about the history of Fordham in a couple of past podcasts, including our mini-series on the Bronx. It's quite easy to find Fordham on a map Mm -hmm. because the main campus is situated just west of the New York Botanical Garden. Mm -hmm. The school is actually much older than the Botanical Garden, of course. And the name Fordham is older still, tracing back to a Dutch landowner who may have named his estate for its proximity to the Bronx River, or actually to a shallow crossing or ford at the Bronx Mm. River, with the H-A-M ham part of Fordham meaning village. So a village by the river's shallow crossing. It certainly sounds bucolic. Mm Mm-hmm. But over the past century, it has also served as a more supernatural crossing, with occupants of the spirit world spilling onto the campus as though it were the first day of school, the first day of ghoul. For the name of this story is The Sorority of Ghosts. So let's back up here, okay? (laughs) Fordham is a very respectable institution. It's a great school, a great place to be a student. It has a beautiful, shady, historic campus. And an origin that traces back to some major historical people, such as Archbishop John Hughes, America's leading Catholic figure in the 1830s, and really the de facto spokesperson for the thousands of newly arriving Irish immigrants who were coming to New York in great numbers during that period. At a time when there was great anti-Catholic sentiment, Hughes wanted to start a Catholic school and in 1839 purchased the estate that was up here, a place called Rose Hill Manor. Classes began two years later when the school was known as St. John's College. By 1846, then, Hughes sold the school to French Jesuits, Catholic missionaries. And to this day, it remains a Jesuit institution. And I believe it was around that date, in 1846, that a very famous literary figure would arrive on the scene. A man famous for his own connections to the macabre. There was a small cottage nearby the school that was soon occupied by the struggling writer Edgar Allan Poe. He moved here in 1846 with his young bride Virginia, who at this time was suffering from consumption, otherwise known as tuberculosis. By this point, Fordham was connected to the metropolis down south by the New York and Harlem Railroad. However, it still retained its clean, rural quality, which Poe believed would be good both for Virginia's health and for his own. 
Despite his own illnesses, however, he kept working on his writing, sculpting poems that he would become known for, Annabelle Lee and Ulla Loom. He also befriended the Jesuits of St. John's College and would often roam the lonely campus in meditation. As one Jesuit described him, it seemed to soothe his mind to wander at will about the lawn and the beautiful grounds back of the college buildings. Meanwhile, Virginia seemed to be slipping ever slowly away. A family friend of Poe's wrote, quote, one felt that she was almost a disrobed spirit, and when she coughed, it was made certain that she was rapidly passing away. Virginia Clem died on January 30th, 1847. Realizing he had no images of her, no etchings or sketches of any kind, Hours after her death here, Poe hastily summoned a painter to the cottage to capture her in watercolor. Her first and only image was painted here after death. She is wrapped in a white shawl, the fine white linens in which she was finally laid to rest. Poe himself died in Baltimore on October 7, 1849. Still living at the cottage, now consumed in a shroud of grief, was Virginia's mother, Maria. She moved from the cottage a couple years later. In 1913, the cottage, now revered by this point thanks to Poe's literary legacy, was then moved a short distance and placed within a new park dedicated in his honor. And by that time, 1913, Old St. John's College went by a different name, Fordham University. Mm. And Poe Park is only a 10-minute walk from the university, which, by the way, has its own collection of amazing buildings. Mm -hmm. And Arthur Avenue, the, the Bronx's Little Italy, is close by, too. So there, there's a lot of history in this stretch of the Bronx. And it's also extremely commercial here as well, mm -hmm. especially along Fordham Road. It's very bustling. But maybe even because of all of this, the university's campus has a calm and tranquil nature, almost like something out of time and place. And perhaps that's why the supernatural feels most especially comfortable here. A lot of this traces back to the year 1972, when a truly iconic American film was made here. Now, Tom, uh, can you guess what film that would be? Let's see, early 70s, Godfather, perhaps, or Serpico? Good guesses, but maybe this will ring a bell. The Exorcist, directed by William Friedkin, an adaptation of a book by Peter Blatty, details the possession and subsequent exorcism of a demon from the body of a young girl. There were actually many scenes filmed in New York, including on sound stages in Hell's Kitchen, at Bellevue Hospital, out on Roosevelt Island, and here at Fordham University, notably in old Hughes Hall, constructed back in the 1890s. If you've read anything about the making of this very disturbing movie, you'll know that strange incidents seemed to have stalked the production at every turn. During the filming in Hughes Hall, a large black dog would suddenly appear on set, 
jet black. You almost couldn't see any distinguishing features. The crew assumed the dog belonged to somebody from the school or maybe from the film. And, you know, it didn't bother anybody. It just stared at the performers. On the final day of shooting, however, the dog disappeared. It never made another appearance, either on Fordham campus or at any other filming location. It has not been seen since. But the effect of making a film of such dark and diabolical subject matter may be that some type of portal was opened. For since then, several supernatural encounters have been registered here at Hughes Hall, which, I should add, was once a student dormitory. To quote directly from the Fordham University newspaper, quote, Hughes Hall sparked several rumors of being haunted. Reportedly, bizarre Satan worship ceremonies occurred on the fourth floor, and strange cultish wall paintings which depict burning flames set against a heavenly sky survived into the 1980s. Hughes is also home for a deceased Jesuit priest who has perpetually haunted the top floors of the building after his death there several years ago. But the best-known entity frequently seen is the shape of a small boy aimlessly and silently roaming the halls. I say the shape, for nobody has seen his face. He's a silhouette, a jet black shape, like that of the black dog from the Exorcist set. But unlike that creature, this aimless little boy frequently makes himself known, most especially in the middle of the night and most frequently on the fourth floor. Oof. Yikes. Needless to say, I would try to take classes in any other building on campus. Um, maybe even change my major to get out of there. Dramatic steps, but necessary. Unfortunately, however, there is nowhere to hide at Fordham University for supernatural occurrences have been reported in almost every corner of the campus. I'm surprised, actually, that Fordham doesn't offer a major in supernatural detection, for their own grounds are a-bloomin' with all manner of restless ghosts, phantoms, and entities from another world. Well, it is a Jesuit institution, after all. I think that degrees in supernatural power and detection are probably not, you know, high on their priority list. Perhaps the most famous ghostly incident occurred at Queen's Court Residential College. In 2003, just before the students were to arrive, an RA was going down the hall, inspecting each room and noticing that the mattresses on each bed in each room were all propped up against the walls. Every single mattress well, that's odd, the assistant thought, going in and putting the mattresses back onto the beds. But the next night, upon another investigation, the RA discovered the mattresses again back upon the walls. The RA went to bed that night, very disturbed, but managed to fall asleep back in their own room when suddenly, at 2.30 in the morning, somebody began harshly knocking at the door. The RA opened the door and found an old Jesuit in an old-fashioned black cassock. 
He said to the RA, Somebody must be praying pretty hard for you to have me up here this early. Anyway, it usually stays in one room down at the end of the hall, but it got out. I took care of it, so you don't have to worry about it. The priest turned and disappeared into the darkness. The RA thought they had dreamt this, but the following morning when they told the supervisor about the incident, they were accused of lying. Why, that priest died 10 years ago. And yet, when the RA again checked those rooms, the mattresses had been returned to their beds. Even from beyond the grave, the ever-watchful Jesuit priests were keeping the dorms clean of malevolent spirits. Now, right across from Queen's Court, you'll find Martyr's Court, with two dormitories built in 1951, adorned with gargoyle-like ram's heads upon the building's exteriors. These halls are tormented by the little blonde girl who frequents the bathrooms, often hiding behind the shower curtains. Many students have seen this girl in recent years, to the point that students' screams of terror, followed by, you know nervous laughter, are often heard at least once a week upon the floor. And yet, when students pulled out their phones to capture the girl for their TikToks, she has regrettably vanished. Now, obviously, I'm not going to have time to go through all of the ghostly occurrences here at Fordham. Wait, why? Keep going. This is <laughs> These are just getting good. We've got mattress drama. Now there's yeah. a girl who doesn't show up in videos. Keep going. <laughs> I know, I know, but we we have so many good supernatural events to report on for this show, but I will add just one more. One more creepy encounter, which occurred at Finley Hall, a very nice dorm for upperclassmen today, and a building that used to be the medical school, built in 1905. Oh, here we go. The medical school, of course, had an operating theater where students would gather and stare down as their professors stood over and slowly carved into a cadaver, a body with tags upon their blackened toes, and a sharp and distinctive odor of formaldehyde in the air. Bodies awaiting their role in this scholarly dissection were kept in the basement. Students, when they move into the dorms here, are regaled with an urban legend about a security guard who once worked in the basement. He was so startled by the sound of clanging and moaning coming from the room where the bodies were once kept that he quit his job right on the spot. But that's just something students say to each other, right? As a prank? However, more than one student has reported some very mysterious behavior after hours when the entire floor has gone to bed. In one of the loft apartments, students have reported waking up and seeing figures standing above them on the landing. Figures looking down intently as though observing something macabre. And more than one student has awakened in the middle of the night by somebody pulling on their big toe. 
it felt as though somebody were tightly tying a tag around their toe. It was though they were about to meet their appointment with the Fordham University Operating Theater. Well, that was quite a footnote, Greg. <laughs> By the way, Fordham is an amazing place. Yeah, Visitors yeah. can <laughs> let's just say that. Visitors can schedule online to take, you know, both guided and self-guided tours. Yes. And students obviously shouldn't be scared. A a higher education is so valuable. And besides, I think putting ghostly encounters on your resume might be a good idea these days. <laughs> In this job market, anything helps. Quite frankly, be more scared of those exams. <laughs> not these, not these stories. Anyway, next we'll be heading into the 1840s for a perfectly delightful story. We'll get to that tale after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus.
The New York Historical Society podcast, For the Ages, explores the rich and complex history of the United States with host David M. Rubenstein, engaging the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in topics including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped America. Alan Shaw Taylor, the Pulitzer Prize winning author of American Republics, A Continental History of the United States, joins David in a two-part conversation on the early decades of the American Republic, first exploring the limits of the country's physical and ideological borders, then in part two, looking at the story of Native Americans seeking to defend their homes from a flood of American settlers, and the emerging expansionist vision pushing the country westward. And in the episode, Virginia Dynasty, Four Presidents and the Creation of the American Nation, author Lynn Cheney examines the friendships and rivalries within the so-called Virginia Dynasty, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe. Lynn and David discuss the contradiction between their espoused ideals of American liberty and prosperity and their status as slaveholders. That's For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify. Well, I'm pleased to report that my first story, as you promised earlier, has several instances of actual gaslight in it. Wow. Actual ghosts by gaslight. Yes. Or as the reporter for the New York Sun liked to call them, phantasms. (laughs) Such a good word. We really need to use phantasms more in our show, (laughs) like show titles. (laughs) Well, it's, it's the perfect word here because there was really no other explanation for what was wreaking havoc for the tenants of a fine house off Lower Fifth Avenue in the village. A seemingly gorgeous old home from the street. But upstairs, in its well-appointed rooms, nearly all of the wealthy families who lived there eventually admitted to experiencing otherworldly visits. Visits from the Phantasm of Fifth Avenue. Now, didn't you and I actually see the Phantasms off-Broadway, like in this, in the neighborhood, right, around this? I think you mean the Fantastics. Oh, or are you talking oh, about Phantom? Yeah. No, <laughs> both, actually. <laughs> no, the Fantastics we saw several times Oh, at the Sullivan Street Playhouse. Mm-hmm. May, it, may it rest in peace. Yeah, that show closed 2002. Wow. Yeah. Um, after 42 years. Oh, and the Playhouse was actually converted to luxury condos in 2005. But no. No, no, no. We are heading a quick walk north of the theater, hop over Washington Square Park, and walk up Fifth Avenue a few blocks and turn left. And there, along this unnamed street at number nine, you'll find a fine old home on the north side of the street. Wait, you're not revealing the actual street here? (laughs) Well, I mean, the the home is still there, right? And it's still a private residence. I don't want to spook anybody out. And the, the 1892 article in The Sun didn't mention the street either for the same reason. I'll just say that it's Lower Fifth Avenue near the park. And it's funny because the article in The New York Sun from 1892 describes the home as being built in 1860, while the Greenwich Village Historic District um, designation report states 1847. For the same house. They didn't have Google when the reporter for The Sun was writing that article. <laughs> Nor did they probably expect a podcaster to be fact-checking them no. 131 years later. No, no. 
But I'm going to go with the designation report after all, uh, because it was constructed in the 1840s. And it was in the 1840s, you know, that luxurious homes were being built all along these side streets and along Lower Fifth Avenue here, you know, before pushing north. The Sun, in its article on February 15th, 1892, describes the house as a, quote, high-stooped, old-fashioned brownstone house of four stories and a basement. It is numbered nine. It is a little back from the street, so that its stone steps are in the shadow of its neighbor. Creeping vines climb up its front walls to hide the bricks and drape the windows in summer. Just now, they are bare and dead. The windows look cheerless, as if to confirm the idea of vacancy given by two white and black to-let signs now fastened to the balcony. Hmm, to-let. Vacancy. So they couldn't keep a tenant? Well, no, not for long. The article gives a rather complete list of tenants, and most of them lasted for only a year or two. But once the, the visits had started, it was usually just a couple of months before the family moved out. The visits? What kind of visits? Oh, your usual bumps and dragging noises and footsteps around a bedroom floor, up and down the staircase, and slamming doors and groans and whispers, and the repeated apparition of a hunched man holding something with a wild grin, who would race from the room when spotted. And the thing is, he visited at least a half dozen people, tenants who lived in this house at different times. The Sun article is really unusual because they actually interviewed on the record several of the recent former tenants. The first was a Mr. Walter B. Whiting, who moved into number nine in 1885. Now, with his family off in Narragansett while he oversaw the staff setting up the house and getting it ready to move in, Mr. Whiting set up his own room in the second floor bedroom overlooking the street. On the first night in the house, after the staff had gone to sleep upstairs, he retired to bed and fell asleep. But a couple hours later, he was jolted awake when, quote, he heard footsteps coming down the stairs from the floor above. He at once thought of the new cook. He got up, put on his dressing gown, and went out into the hall to see what she wanted. The hall was dark, and he could see nothing, but he could hear the steps just starting down the stairway to the parlor floor. He followed, and all the way down he heard the steps a few feet in advance. He followed them along the parlor hallways, and then down the basement stairs. He had gone but a few steps down, when he heard the door at the foot of the stairs slam in front of him. Then he heard the outside basement door open and shut. He hurried forward, opened this door, and looked out into the street. It was empty and silent. But Mr. Whiting here just thought it was his new cook. To make sure that his suspicions were correct, he rang for one of the other servants and asked her to see if the cook was in her room. In a few minutes, the servant returned and said that the cook was sound asleep in bed, as were the other servants. As the days passed, the noises continued at night, but now they were coming from the floor of the adjoining bedroom, which had rugs over hardwood floors. Mr. Whiting could hear steps bumping about on the carpets and then much louder on the floors. 
steps around and around the room while he was there. It grew louder and louder with Mr. Whiting watching and he finally cried out, for God's sake, is there anything you want me to do for you? You seem to be in distress and if there's any way I can help you, why don't you let me know how? The steps stopped and then started up again. And finally, Mr. Whiting just gave up and he returned to his room and somehow he fell asleep. Good grief, he must have been a sound sleeper. Were these sounds appearing for anybody else? Yes, to the staff. They were terrified. They lived up on the fourth floor, the the garret on top of the house. They all eventually had stories of footsteps and breathing behind them. But then they realized, like Mr. Whiting, that nothing bad was really happening. And so they just learned to live with it. So it was a friendly ghost. Or at least that's what they told themselves. But in the summer of 1886, something even stranger happened. Mr. Whiting's brother, Mr. Butler Whiting, came to stay in the house while his brother and his family were out of town. On the first night, he came home late and went up to the second floor bedroom overlooking the street and went to bed. The night was hot, said Mr. Butler Whiting to the reporter for The Sun, and the front windows were wide open. A lamp on the opposite side of the street threw a dim light into the room, just enough to make objects in it visible. Before I went to bed, I put my revolver on the mantelpiece, over the fireplace, on the opposite side of the room. I had not the slightest thought that the house was haunted. I was rather restless in bed, owing perhaps to the heat, but I finally fell into a doze. Just how long I had been in bed I do not know, but all at once I was aware that somebody was in the room. Just about opposite the foot of my bed, I saw the dark figure of a man. There was not light enough to distinguish his features. He appeared to have entered from the hallway and was moving when I saw him. I supposed, of course, he was a burglar, and I jumped up and called out, Stop! He continued to move across the room, and I leaped for the mantelpiece and seized my revolver. Stop, I called out, or I'll fire. He disappeared into the passageway adjoining the bedroom as I pointed the revolver at him and fired. As soon as the echo of the shot subsided, I listened, but I could hear nothing. I immediately lighted the gas and looked into the passageway and the adjoining room, but saw nothing. Then I went out and I got a policeman, and we made a thorough search of the whole house, from the cellar to the attic. We searched every closet and nook where a man might conceal himself, but there was not the slightest trace of a man anywhere or the slightest thing to show that the house had been entered. The doors in the rear and in the front were locked securely. What was even more remarkable, after the most thorough search, we were unable to find any sign of the bullet. There was no bullet mark in the passageway or in the room beyond. Indeed, all the evidence was so entirely lacking that the policeman discredited my whole story and came to the conclusion that I had been dreaming. So this guy was the brother of the owner, and he just Mm -hmm. places a revolver on the mantelpiece, just leaves it there before going to sleep? I had a feeling you'd ask about that. (laughs) Yes. And to make things even more like the game of Clue, his name was Butler. He said he would never sleep at his brother's house again. 
But his brother Walter continued to have these visits, as did his daughter Florence, who was only 14 years old when she lived at number nine. And hers is perhaps my favorite story. It was about 4.30 o'clock in the afternoon, and I had just come out of my room on the third floor in the rear. As it was winter, the halls were in twilight, which came down through the skylight. The gas in the hall had not been lighted. As I came out of my room, I saw somebody in the front end of the hallway at the door. Nobody had ever told me anything about there being ghosts in the house, and I supposed it was one of the servants or somebody in the family. The person was in the shadow at the front of the hall, and I could not see who it was, so I called out, Who's that? I was standing just at the head of the stairway then, and the person, without making any answer, started to come toward me along the hall. As soon as the person came out from the shadow and into the light of the skylight, I saw it was a man. He was short and deformed. And as he walked toward me, he appeared to be half-crouching. His arms were bundled up under a long black cape, which he wore as if he carried something. And when I first saw him, the cape hid half his face. He came on toward me, and I looked full in his face. It was ghastly pale, like the face of a dead person. He had no beard or mustache, and his hair was dark and cut short. His eyes were very large and dark and stared at me as he came near. He came quickly toward me, and before I realized what was going on, he was so near that I could have reached out and touched him. Then he muttered something in a whisper, which I could not understand. I shrieked and ran downstairs. In a minute, everybody in the house was upstairs searching for the man I had seen, but there was no trace of him. Wow. And I love that being the year 1892, the fact that this man had no beard or mustache was an important enough detail to mention. <laughs> <laughs> it probably made him scarier. I guess so. A hairless face. But the poor Whiting family, I mean, he just kept appearing to everybody. And unsurprisingly, the Whiting family moved out soon after, in 1887. Could they find anyone to move into this place? I mean, you know, aside from the haunts, it does sound like a lovely a place, and it's great location. Oh, they found somebody. No one less than Mr. Delancey Cleveland, who was a cousin of Grover Cleveland, who had been the governor of New York a few years before. And um, he would, of course, become president. But this Mr. Cleveland complained to the reporter that he didn't last long in the house, not because he was particularly afraid, but because he couldn't keep his staff there. They kept hearing things and witnessing things on the top floor, but he attributed the noises to the fact that there was a vacant lot on the house's west side and that the wind would whip around the house and it could make strange noises. And by the way, Greg, when I looked up the house on an 1867 fire insurance map, which I'm wont to do, <laughs> sure enough, there it was, the vacant lot just west of the house. Hmm. Good detective work, by the way. <laughs> New York Public Library. But whipping wind doesn't sound like steps on a staircase, and it certainly doesn't explain a grinning ghoul. No, it doesn't. And when Mr. Cleveland moved out, 
a Mr. John Bradley moved in and continued living there until he died in the house two years after moving in. But his family stayed on until a year before the article was published in 1892. They moved out and then it sat empty for about a year until this article was published. So does the article give any idea, any speculation as to who this ghost was and why this ghost haunts this particular house? Well, it gave theories. One was that the house was built atop a graveyard, but that was dismissed. So those kinds of theories. But they did helpfully go through a list of all the previous tenants, including the wealthy banker Julius Hallgarten, who built the house and who gave away much of his fortune to charitable causes, then a Peter V. King lived there, and then a Governor Ogden, who had been a bigwig at Columbia College. Um, he lived there until he had died in 1884. And I was actually able to identify the street address because of his obituary from 1884. But then soon after, Mr. Whiting moved in, which brings us back to the beginning of our story. So nothing definitive, but the article does conclude the testimony of Mr. Walter Whiting and Mr. Cleveland and several others to hearing the footsteps and whisperings and the testimony of Mr. Butler Whiting, of Miss Whiting, to the appearance of the ghost before their eyes in a sufficient light and under circumstances which would not tend to make the imagination morbidly active. The facts have been given and it is for the reader to decide whether the apparition of an old man crouched and huddled whispering and peering, roams the halls and rooms of a New York house in the dusk and the dark. <laughs> Two more ghost stories by the glow of the gaslight after this. Tom, I must confess that there's something quite class-based, actually, even elitist, about ghost stories at times. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it seems like with these stories that only the houses of wealthy people can afford to be haunted. Well, I mean, it is true that it's more fun to talk about haunted houses and haunted mansions than it is to talk about haunted studio apartments. <laughs> but the spirit world doesn't discriminate. And the next story takes place in the year 1900 on the lower, lower east side, or rather a tenement quarter that was known as Cherry Hill along the east side waterfront. Today, this is the neighborhood of two bridges located between the Brooklyn and Manhattan bridges. There are only a few traces today of what this area used to look like from the time of our story. In fact, I would say that the most distinguishing feature of the neighborhood today, sadly, is the FDR Drive, which cuts off the area from the waterfront. A bit of an eyesore. And yes, many of the buildings are gone, but some of the streets are still there. Yes, I mean, today you can still walk on Cherry Street, which was once the heart of a very attractive district way back in the late 18th century. In fact, President George Washington lived on this street when New York was briefly the capital of the United States in 1789. And in 1824, 
The home of Samuel Leggett at 7 Sherry Street became the first in New York to be lit with gas lighting. Thousands came from all around to witness this truly extraordinary sight. So your story here truly takes us to the origin spot of Mm -hmm. New York gaslight. But you said that the story takes place in 1900. Mm -hmm. By then, this neighborhood was really no longer fashionable at all. I mean, very far from it. It was a notorious waterfront district, you know, that was filled with the most inadequate housing and a quite rowdy street life. But was it haunted? Well, let me turn your attention to the corner of Cherry and Roosevelt Streets and to an old mansion which had crumbled into ruin and to an evil presence which had vexed its four walls for decades. For the name of this story is The Poltergeist of Cherry Hill. We're going to a three-room flat or apartment in a building on Cherry Street, most likely, according to descriptions, an old townhouse or manor house, which by the mid-19th century had been cut up into smaller apartments to accommodate more people. Now, by the 1870s, many blocks west of our Cherry Street house here were demolished for the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge. On May 24th, 1883, the bridge opened to great fanfare, and you could see this grand piece of architecture from the window of the Cherry Street apartment. But by 1883, sinister things were already taking place within this apartment. Members of the neighborhood gang known as the Squareback Rangers, a rowdy social club, ruled the roost here on Cherry Street. Their headquarters were a candy shop on Roosevelt Street. But even the bravest among them refused to enter this building. And they even refused to look into its windows for fear that something may be looking back. According to the New York Times, under the headline, Mystery of Cherry Hill, Haunted Flat Made Uninhabitable for 19 Years, quote, No tenant has remained more than a few hours within its walls for the goodly space of 19 years. Tenants have presumed to move in only to hustle out after finding their furniture turned upside down and their handsome framed prints turned to the wall by occult influences. Nineteen years. This lasted nineteen years, and and this was an article from nineteen hundred. So, what happened nineteen years before that? In I guess eighteen eighty one. Well, at some point, even before that date, an old married couple, immigrants from France, moved into the apartment. Even by that date, they could see the Brooklyn Bridge outside their window, nearing completion. It must have been exciting, this incredible new symbol for progress, to be living near it, even though the streets around them were still very squalid. For many people, and perhaps for this man and woman, 
It might have even represented a job or a new opportunity. Unfortunately, at some point in the year 1880, the husband grew sick and eventually died here in the apartment. The French woman was paralyzed with grief. There was no one to take care of her and no hope that anyone ever would. The following events took place the next year. Quoting the Times, One night she took a blanket and a stout clothesline and with their help hanged herself on the bedroom door. She was found dead in the morning and her body was taken down by the neighbors. Since that tragedy, the flat has become uninhabitable. Cherry Hill gossip mongers hesitate to say that it is haunted because they do not believe that the ghost of the unfortunate French woman ever comes back to this scene of her death. But everybody in the old fourth ward knows that there is something the matter with that flat. That's a heartbreaking story. And circumstances that were sadly not uncommon in this neighborhood in the late 19th century. But it's interesting that the report suggests that it was not the ghost of the woman who haunted the building, but maybe something else. Perhaps something was already lurking here by the time the old couple moved in. I should add that Cherry Hill was already a place where mysterious and disturbing things happened, as is often the case with New York waterfront neighborhoods of this period. In 1891, just a couple blocks east from this haunted place, at a boarding house, an old woman nicknamed Old Shakespeare was murdered in a most grisly fashion, a murder that the press believed was committed by Jack the Ripper. Now, for more on that story, check out the Bowery Boys episode 312 called Has Jack the Ripper Come to Town? Even with such notable crimes, however, it was still the reputation of this haunted place which frightened people the most. But didn't people continue to live there? People still needed a place to live, so I can't really imagine that the place went completely empty. There were some attempts by families to live here over the years. There was a family by the name of the Ryans. Quoting from the Times, They were just as respectable a family as ever lived on the hill, and they had no skeletons in their family closet to excite the sinister ill will of a ghost. So they moved into the flat, husband, wife, and three children, unquote. But no sooner had they begun unpacking and putting things into place when immediately the Ryans began experiencing strange phenomena. Small things at first, a table moving of its own accord, a scratching sound coming from the hall. But when it was investigated, it was discovered that nothing was there. But this entity was just warming up. The article continues... About an hour after they had all gone to bed, there was one of the greatest rackets that ever took place in a genuinely haunted house. The family woke up to see their furniture being thrown all over the flat by some invisible agency, unquote. 
Their possessions were flying about the room, books, toys, clothing, as though gravity had simply released its hold upon the flat. And it was dark, for the lights had been snuffed out. The children were screaming. And then somewhere in the darkness came a shape, a figure. Suddenly the husband was punched in the face. So too was the wife, her left eye blackened. The children, however, were affected in a different way. According to reports, they came down with a harsh, scratchy, and perpetual cough, as though something was suddenly and severely blackening their lungs. And all this happened in just about 10 minutes' time. According to the report, six hours had been used to move the family into the flat, but it took that family just 50 minutes to get out for good with their belongings. Terrifying. Was this a one-off occurrence? Did this ever happen again? Well, other families did try their luck here time and again, and each family seems to have met the same fate, fleeing into the streets in terror from this most malevolent poltergeist. Word eventually got out, of course, that this one particular flat was simply uninhabitable, that it was, I guess you could say, actually already occupied. By the mid-1890s, its reputation was so notorious that the flat was never again rented out. But did anybody else try? Did anybody else venture into the apartment? Well, we do know of one man, one person. In 1895, a man that the Times referred to as, quote, the bravest guy in Cherry Hill ventured into the apartment to spend the night. His name was Jackie Haggerty, and he was infamous around the neighborhood. Back when old Steve Brody claimed to have jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge, Mm -hmm. Jackie decided to replicate the feat on a dare, a stunt which he actually survived, but which got him locked up in jail. So in other words, Jackie is the perfect person to investigate (laughs) an uninhabitable haunted house. Fearless. And yet his encounter here would doom him. He had talked it up among his cohorts who loaded him up with booze one night before sending him into the dark apartment where he was to spend the evening. If he could risk jumping off the Brooklyn Bridge, what fear did he have of an alleged ghost? And yet the moment he stepped foot in the apartment he felt that something was very off. We don't have his first-hand account, but we do know from other reports that he was severely beaten within the apartment by some kind of invisible force, something cold and evil. He was beaten so badly that he fled the house with outsized panic, crying and screaming, which by some accounts ruined his good reputation among the street toughs. Yet he was never the same again, never mentally the same. 
The experience shook him so badly that he withdrew and spent his last remaining years living in isolation with his mother. His only solace was daily reading to her from the newspaper their preferred section, the obituaries. Seven months after the Times first reported on this haunted house, Jackie Haggerty died in his home of pneumonia, having never lived down his encounter with the ghost of Cherry Hill. Whoa. Greg, I gotta confess. Mm -hmm. I must confess that the ghost hunter in me just wants a little bit to check this building out. Is it mm -hmm. is it still around? Can we see it today? Well, unlike the um, haunted places that we have already talked about, which are still with us in the physical world, this building is not there. Not only is the building gone, actually, but much of the neighborhood around it is gone, mm. including some of the streets. Because just a couple decades later, the city began demolishing entire blocks of decrepit housing and replacing them with public housing. And in 1934, the New York City Housing Authority, or NYCHA, was formed. And in the early 1950s, Roosevelt Street, parts of Cherry Street, and all the incorporated blocks were wiped out to build the Alfred E. Smith houses, named for the former governor who had grown up in this neighborhood. Any other surviving vestiges of the neighborhood were then wiped out in the following decade with the construction of automobile ramps from the FDR Drive to the Brooklyn Bridge. So, the location of where this house was is actually pretty hard to find. However, there are portions of Cherry Street that do exist, as we said, running past Catherine Slip and Market Slip and under the dark archway of the Manhattan Bridge further east. It also runs near a Manhattan mini-storage where people pack away their old furniture and old boxes. Who's to say that the same spirit doesn't live there now, engaging in some seriously spooky rearranging? Well, from the spooky Manhattan mini storage on the Lower East Side, <laughs> mm -hmm. which, by the way, is in the old New York Post building. Ah, Remember that? Mm -hmm. We are now heading way uptown and across the island to Riverside Drive, right where it meets 100th Street today on the Upper West Side. Love this area. I mean, when we did our Riverside Park episode, what was it, like five years mm -hmm. ago, episode yep. 270? We visited a lot of sculptures and memorials that were up here around 100th Street. Well, in fact, we went to the Fireman's Memorial, remember, which is mm -hmm. located right here at 100th and Riverside Drive. And that memorial dates back to 1913. But my story goes back much further, before there was actually a Riverside Drive at all, when a stately white country manor stood up here on the spot resisting the change that would creep up at its gates. A stately white manor with a secret chamber and an uninvited visitor. For the name of my story is The Locked Room 
on Riverside Drive. Now, we're going back to the early 1800s, when today's Upper West Side was really just covered in farms and country estates, and the Bloomingdale Road cut down through here to take you down to New York City. We're going back to around 1800, when a great white house was constructed up here on a plot of land that ran roughly from today's 99th Street up to 104th, and from today's West End Avenue all the way down to the river. A 1905 piece in the Times about that large home that was built upon it described the home as having, quote, a stately pillared portico on its western front that commands a wide sweep of the river to Castle Point, where Hoboken has since sprung into existence, and far up beyond the Palisades to the first heights of the highlands. So it was into this home, decades after it was built in 1843, that William P. Furness, who had made a fortune in shipping, and his wife Sophia, and their six children moved. This was their country home. The Times wrote that, quote, Instead of steam whistles and the puffs of engines and the snorts of automobiles, there were heard the merry shouts of romping children who loved the house as their birthplace and played in the lush grass and blossoming groves with the freedom of country life, or bathed, or boated, Wide fields stretched eastward and cultivated grounds north to what is now 104th Street. There, a gateway opened to a winding avenue shaded by great chestnut trees leading to the house. The years passed, and William Furness continued buying up land around his home up here and amassing an even larger fortune for his family. But then the family members began to die first two of the boys in the 1860s, and then William himself in 1871, then another son, and then their mother, Sophia, in 1878. This left three Furness sisters, still living, but no longer able to, you know, or willing to keep up this large estate. And William had left a stipulation in his will that the home should always remain a home. And so the daughters dutifully then rented it out, first to a man named Russell Clark and his family. But there was a catch. There was one room upstairs that they were not to touch, a door onto which they placed a double lock. Nobody was to disturb it. Nobody could. Were they ever tempted to pry the locks off? Well, the, the Clarks stayed in the house for more than 20 years, up until the early 1890s. And no, the locks never moved. Uh, they, they took fine care of the old mansion. The Times reported later that, quote, From the Clarks, the place received the same care it had while occupied by the Furness family. So yeah, I don't think anybody picked the locks. But by the time the Clarks moved out, the house had taken on a new name the old colonial White House. Its story took another interesting turn. The Furness sisters 
rented it to a woman named Alma Walker, who rented out rooms to artists. The dramatist Paul Kester lived there, and according to the Times, he, quote, used to rehearse his companies in the big drawing room. Since then, various artists have made it their temporary home, within which to work and dream out their inspirations. The house, though weather-beaten, with its original whiteness dimmed by many seasons of sun and rain and snow, has the charm that will linger around old memories. In a profile of the mansion and its history, the article also stated, matter-of-factly, that the sprawling old manor was also home to a spirit, a gentle and studious spirit who spends his time at night in the great downstairs room, which was then used as a parlor. Quote, It was for a time occupied as a sleeping room, and some who have slept there affirm positively that when the lights are out and everyone has retired, the ghost will come forth without waiting for the hour of midnight. He comes into the room, and walks gently across to an imaginary bookcase, the glass doors of which are heard to open. The ghost takes from a shelf one of the books, which can also plainly be heard in the stillness of the night. The glass doors are gently closed again, and the spirit walks over to the fireplace, where he draws up an armchair, into which he subsides with a sigh of relief. Then all is silent again. If the one who has been listening to these sounds should get up and light the gas, he would find nothing, neither bookcase, ghost, nor armchair. Yet the same sounds would be heard each succeeding night. And so our episode today begins and ends with a literary ghost, with a, a literate ghost, a it's ghost so that true. likes a good book and a roaring fireplace. The ghost who clearly has good tastes, right? He's too busy with highbrow activities to spook anybody. But the focus of the article was also about how the city had changed, you know, up and around the old mansion. The, the plan for Riverside Park that had been put forth by Frederick Law Olmsted had been accepted by the city in 1875, and it had taken the next 25 years really to implement and, and then really transform this entire area. But parks, as we know, can bring real estate developers. And though the old mansion you know, still stood in 1905 when the article was published, its future demolition seemed predestined. And some of that was because of the Furnace sisters themselves. You know, they had already begun selling off lots owned by the family, you know, all around the old home. Luxurious apartment towers now ran along Riverside Drive around the old estate, you know, and, and fine homes were now lining the side streets off of it. And in 1908, the sisters sold lots along West End Avenue up to the house itself, and then from the house down to Riverside Drive, leaving the home with its, you know, artist colony still inside, sort of stranded and falling into disrepair. And the next year, in 1909, the New York Sun announced that the old mansion had been demolished. Quote, 
A bit of old New York gone. Riverside Drive loses the old furnace house. The Times, in their article, added that its demolition marked the end of an era. But as the mansion was being carted away for lumber, and generations of heirlooms were being pulled from its walls, the wrecking crews came upon the small room on the upper floor, its padlock still in place. The Sun wrote, In every lease given of the place, it was stipulated that this little room, the smallest in the house, must never be touched or meddled with. And finally, it had been opened. Quote, It contained what might be classified as family relics. There was the cradle in which all of the last generation of furnaces were rocked. There were some curious seashells from foreign shores. And there were six or seven cases of old wine of different vintages, most of it dating from 1830. On examination, one of these cases was found empty. Only the straw that had wrapped the bottles filled it. Empty. But the room was locked and had been for decades. Nobody could have gotten in past those two padlocks. No person, that is. Perhaps, Greg, it was the uninvited literary ghost who so enjoyed relaxing by the fire, a glass of wine in hand, as the walls came down on Riverside Drive. Now, if you'd like to hear us tell similar stories, different stories, but live, we still have some <laughs> tickets left for our Joe's Pub show at the Public Theater, which, by the way, we started this show telling one of those ghost stories, which we told in a prior show. So sometimes we mm. throw in some new stuff. Um, so th that show will be October 27th, 30th, 31st, 2023. Um, you can get those tickets at thepublictheater.org. And for those who support our show on Patreon.com, we'll have a new episode of our bonus show called Side Streets, um, where we talk about all sorts of uh, different tangential things. I think this show, we Tom, we should give people a little preview of that live show. No spoilers, but, you know, maybe like talk about how we put that show together, some types of things that people might expect, and we'll share some events which have occurred in recent past, including the fact that Tom got COVID last year. <laughs> yeah, that was a knee slapper. Yes, we'll be giving you some behind-the-scenes drama at Joe's Pub, Bowery Boys Edition, over there at Patreon. Thank you for supporting the show. We couldn't make the show without you. You can join the fun at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. By the way, our patrons found out first about those tickets going on sale, and were able to grab the best tickets. They got the so best ones, yeah. There are other perks for joining <laughs> us on Patreon. Thank you for joining us over the gaslight as we tell this year's round of spooky stories. It was a pleasure as always, Greg. And don't put Cheryl away. We need her for the stage. <laughs> oh, she's just she's just starting her adventure this fall. <laughs> this this is her time to fly. Her time to soar. <laughs> On that note, uh, come out and join us and, and meet Cheryl for yourself. Thank you for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. <laughs> <laughs>